This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Monday, January 9th. The weather forecast for today looks like a mainly cloudy day and a high of plus 3 degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, the Toronto Police Board will move forward with a funding injection for the police service today. Number two, Canadians observe the anniversary of the Iranian downing of Flight 752. Number three, go train doors are going to close early. Number four, former federal finance minister says we overspent on COVID. And number five, Prince Harry talks about the Royal Rift. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Well, welcome to your Monday. How's it going so far? I got a nod from Nick Marano, so I guess it's just fine. (laughs) But it's early. It is. It is. It's very early. And uh, thanks for being with us at this early hour. The time is 5.07. Temperature's minus 2. To my memory, that's the first time this year that we've launched a show where we're below zero at this hour because we have been in a very mild stretch. That is expected to continue for uh, the next few days. We'll get to the full forecast. I was listening to all kinds of reporting on my way in this morning, and uh, they were certainly touching on the fact that Europe is also having an unanticipatedly warm uh, winter. And it's got to the point where the it is completely trashing the ski season. And I was supposed to actually being, uh, to be headed off to uh, go skiing with my brother, but I think we're going to set that aside for the time being because it's just not, not the greatest of conditions. And I haven't talked to Glenn Crowder about how conditions are in Ontario, so I won't weigh in on that. Maybe if you have some personal knowledge, you can uh, let me know. At 71010. You can always send us a text at 71010. I know that as part of the same report I was listening to, they were talking about the fact that they're starting to consider an alternative means of freezing the canal in Ottawa for skating because if they wait for natural freezing, they're just never going to get there. Year after year after year for the last 20 years, the number of days where people can go skating on the um, on the canal has the it's been narrowing to such a point where it's barely worth putting in the infrastructure to support it because um i forget a couple of years ago uh, i don't know which calendar year it was but i think you know skating was available for 30 days or less that was it so the, those are the times we're living in and i guess for some people unless you crave the winter experience then you're just fine with that cuz uh, it's a lot more comfortable to be outdoors so i have almost nothing to offer on the story except that it is our lead item today and that is toronto police services board set to meet today to decide whether or not they're going to approve a 50 million dollar funding increase almost 50 million it's 48.3 for the city's police force that would result in the addition of 200 police officers and i don't think there's going to be much of a debate i don't even know if there are any dissenters on the toronto police board Uh, i know the mayor sits on it and it was his idea that we crank up the amount of money we're putting into the police services budget um the guy who chairs it, uh, Mr. Pringle, I've, uh, 
I gave up years ago in trying to, to get him to say anything publicly. I don't know if it's his policy never to give interviews or if he just doesn't like us. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I gave up years and years and years ago. And uh, so in all likelihood, that is going to be approved. But I have to say, I watched a fascinating and fairly aggressive interview with John Tory about this increase in spending. And again and again and again, the person asking the questions said, where is the research that tells us this is necessarily going to make our city any safer? And John Tory came back and said, well, this was part of my platform. This is what I promised. This is what I told Torontonians I was going to do. So I'm going to do it. And then the interviewer said, yes, but can we come back to whether or not there's any empirical evidence that this actually makes things safer? And that is my problem. And we've talked about this before on the show. I don't know, because in, you know, 20 years of doing interviews about policing and police budgets and staffing levels, I've never come across any research that tells us what the proportion of officers to citizens should necessarily be. And if there's any research that has ever established that, okay, this is the sweet spot, this is the magic point, this is what, this is the level of public safety and this is what it's gonna cost. So it'd be interesting to see what, if any, debate happens today at the Toronto Police Service Board. I find this story absolutely fascinating because it's just so quirky and maybe even so Toronto that the people at Metrolinx have decided that the doors on GO trains are going to close for 60 seconds prior to the train pulling out of the station. And I'm not sure what that is, but they insist that it's going to make them more efficient. How so? Unless people have been falling under the wheels, running for the doors in the last three seconds before they close, I don't know how this makes a difference. It's almost like there has to be this sort of Zen moment of repose where the doors are going to close and everyone's going to sit there for 60 seconds. And then majestically, the train will proceed out of the station. But I know people at Metrolinx listen. So if you want to send me a message this morning to explain how this works, for me, it's just, it's not necessarily time travel or anything, but I just don't know what material difference it makes to close the doors, wait 60 seconds, pull out, as opposed to close the doors, throw the gears, let's, you know, let's go. Um, but there, there's, a, you know, a lot of strange things happen. In, like I said, it's, it seems a little bit uh, quintessentially Toronto somehow. Memorial was held yesterday. It was the third anniversary of the downing of flight PS752. This was a plane coming out of Iran on its way to uh, the Czech Republic, if memory serves. Or was it Ukraine? I'm, I'm it, getting It was nods. Ukraine. It was Ukraine, yeah. Before the world went to hell in a handbasket in Ukraine. Uh, and thing was, just owing to the way transit was working at the time by air, there were an awful lot of Canadians on that plane. And I never quite get the parsing of, you know, this many citizens, this many permanent residents. I think if you live in Canada, you're, you're a Canadian. I mean, you may not get to vote, but these were Canadian people. Um, and Justin Trudeau, in speaking yesterday, Nick, if you want to throw in clip number 30, uh, said that they're still pushing to hold Iran 
accountable for this. You may remember um, they insist that there was something dodgy about the plane. What it really was was an accident. It was a stupid military accident and people died for it. And Iran just never can admit anything. If the Iranian regime does not comply within six months with this binding arbitration, we will take the next steps and move to the International Court of Justice where there will be accountability. And then one other, well, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in, in the headlines this morning. We're going to talk about it all. But one other story this morning would be, and we'll talk with uh, Vashi at 6.35, uh, Vashi Caballos interviewing Bill Morneau, the former federal finance minister, on her weekend political show. And a few interesting takeaways. I don't find Bill Morneau to be a particularly compelling individual because I think he was largely a failure to start or failure to launch as a cabinet minister and as a federal politician. But everybody gets to write their book. All right, time for what Toronto is talking about with News Talk 1010's John Moore. John, Happy New Year. We made it through the first week of January. We did. Uh, nice, mild weather, and for an awful lot of people, a dry January as well. But it's nice to see you, Jennifer. <laughs> nice to see you too, John. So let's get into it. Uh, Toronto Police Services Board, they are meeting to discuss the city's proposed budget increase, and that's to the tune of almost $50 million. Yeah, to be precise, $48.3 million that John Tory has pledged to add to the Toronto Police Services budget, bringing it to over $1.1 billion. I have a feeling this is going to be largely a rubber stamp today because the Police Services Board tends to be a fairly uniform affair. So the big question will be, with 200 new officers, does the city necessarily get safer? Mm -hmm. And John, yesterday, you know, it was a pretty somber day. It was the memorial, the third year, uh, the anniversary for the victims of flight PS752. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now vowing for justice. This was a plane that was taking off from Iran and it was mistakenly brought down with two missile strikes. Uh, it was on its way to Ukraine where uh, the Canadians would have transited on to Canada. There were 85 people with roots in Canada in total who were killed and a lot of those tragic stories retold yesterday. Husbands, wives, children, families, parents, all who died in that horrible crash. Justin Trudeau was actually present for the memorial and vowed that eventually there will be justice. He set a six-month timeline for Iran, either offering a settlement or ending up in the international court. Yeah, absolutely horrific right there. And John, this uh, next story, it's kind of like setting your alarm clock earlier so that you won't be late, but go trains are closing doors a minute before departure time and some people already reacting to this. I'm trying to figure out what the logic in all of this is. I mean, if you close the doors and wait 60 seconds, I guess it's a lovely moment of reflection. <laughs> I'm not sure how this necessarily speeds up GO Train service. It will not apply on the UP Express. However, GO Trains now, they'll close the doors one minute before departure. Mm, okay, we'll see how this project plays out. And John, uh, the former Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau says Canada, he thinks that we spent too much on pandemic relief aid and, of course, he's worried that this is going to contribute to the recession. Bill Morneau had a somewhat abortive career as a federal civil servant or as a federal cabinet minister. At Sometimes he's been touted as the future prime minister, but I think the we crisis, amongst other things, kind of put a pinch on that. He's out with his new book called Where To From Here. He was doing the interview circuit yesterday, including our own at CTV, Vashi Capellos. And yes, you're absolutely right. One of the things that he said that I think is making the headlines is he felt that we overspent on COVID. He had his number and Justin Trudeau had 
agreed to it. Then he went in for a meeting, and Justin Trudeau came out with a whole bunch more money. And he feels that that is largely responsible for, I mean, first mm -hmm. of all, the deficit, but also for uh, probably fueling inflation. Mm -hmm. Okay, something we still struggle with today, of course. And, John, let's end on a royal note. Uh, Prince Harry is defending his explosive <laughs> memoir, which is set to be released, I think it's tomorrow, January 10th. And, you know, you, you hear him talk about all his reasons for wanting to bear it all. He is being extraordinarily candid, and as a matter of fact, people are somewhat astonished at some of the things that he's revealed in the book. Uh, he did two interviews, two major interviews, I should say, on the weekend, one of them with Britain's ITV, the other one with Anderson Cooper at 60 Minutes. Uh, he talked about everything from race to sort of how hidebound the royals are to his stepmother, Camilla, mm -hmm. and then he also talks somewhat candidly as well about the fact that he felt guilty for years because he didn't, didn't think that he cried enough when his mother was killed in a car accident. Yeah, and John, just very bizarre also, you know, mentioning getting frostbitten on his nether regions, which I don't even know how, <laughs> how that can happen, but I guess we'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> there is that excerpt. All right, News Talk 1010's John Moore. Have a great day, John. Catch him live 5 a.m., 5.07 a.m. to 9 a.m. Take care, John. There you go. That's our morning segment where we hook up with our friends over at uh, CP24 so everybody can see just how out of control my hair is on any given day. I, I don't know how it happened. I guess I'm getting a bit Boris Johnson-esque in, uh, in my hair these days, but it doesn't matter on radio. Nothing matters on radio in terms of visual, but then, you know, for five minutes every morning, there we are on television. And as Jennifer mentioned, I, I'm going to have to read up on the excerpts. I don't know if I'm going to read the whole book. I'm, I am... I, I enjoy stories about the royals, and as a matter of fact, the whole royal history, and there are some amazing stories to be told. And basically, I know I've been, I've had some people complain about my characterizing the royal family as a soap opera, but it is, you know, and it just happens that the stakes are a little bit higher. But it's still about falling in love, not being with the people you want to be with, having kids, uh, sudden deaths, and, and ambition, and all kinds of other things. Um, and then... The fact that you are also possibly going to be the king or something else is is just adds the compelling aspect to the whole thing. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure out the exact circumstances. Harry apparently in the book says that when he was attending William's wedding, he had, as Jennifer characterized it, frostbite on the nether regions. How does that happen? I don't know. None of you guys on the other side of the glass have read any of those excerpts yet, have you? No? Just that one. <laughs> just that one. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, was he just in from the field of battle and, you know, lying face down in the dirt? Well, I don't know. I guess we'll have to find Look out. Look out for the bear traps. Uh, yeah. Um, 6.35 this morning, Vashi Capellos is going to be here to talk about her conversation with Bill Morneau. I don't want to necessarily give him the short shrift. And his criticisms of Justin Trudeau, the way that Justin Trudeau runs his office and runs his uh, life as prime minister, the idea that we may have overspent on COVID, all of those things are fairly compelling. But at the same time, Bill Morneau, you know, like I read, uh, now I'm trying to remember the name, uh, Indian in the Cabinet. Um, I read her memoir and actually she's a great writer, but still the... The stakes are so low that I don't know you want to spend 400 pages going through the life of a cabinet minister, in her case, who was out after three years, in his case, who was out after five years. These are, 
compelling things for policy wonks who want an insider's perspective on how government works. But it's hardly the grandest of lives to have spent five years as the federal finance minister and to have cashed out as a result of a scandal with the WE organization. It's just, it's not, it's not that compelling. However, I think it does give us some insight into Justin Trudeau and into this particular government and into the financial situation that we as Canadians find ourselves in. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.34 on a Monday morning, minus two degrees. Another person died in an encampment fire on the weekend. This one actually happened at the base of a cell phone tower in Liberty Village. And while it seems a bit crass, perhaps, to preoccupy ourselves with the cell phone tower, that would have been an issue had it been damaged enough that it had knocked people out of service. But the wider issue would be that somebody died in a fire, in a homeless encampment, and that this situation persists. And, you know, officials have been very, very clear on this. I, it's, it's such a fraught file because of course you sympathize with people who are so desperate that they would camp out in a public park. But at the same time, it simply is an untenable situation that people live in public areas. And I just, I don't buy in. And I know I always get a lot of flack about this, but you know, it's not, I was going to say, I was going to say, it's not like I don't walk the walk. Um, I mean, certainly I'm extraordinarily supportive of uh, organizations and charities that look after the needs of the homeless. And I have been extraordinarily mindful of the file. It's just, I do not buy as some people who work on the streets do. The idea that the public parks are some sort of sort of old-fashioned commons and that because it is public land, it belongs to everyone, ergo somebody can live on it if they want to. Pastor Doug, who I took a day with walking from encampment to encampment and talking about all of the issues, and we sat in one of the parks and he described his philosophy, which is that back in the day, in the early days, in you know, sort of back in the day in England, and it was a custom that was brought to the United States as well, the idea was that you could graze your animals on public property, and that was just part of the sort of collective experience. That land belongs to the people, therefore it belongs to everybody, therefore the farmers can feed their um, cattle on it or whatever other livestock. And it's a sweet idea, but I just don't think it's a way to run a city. So while I don't want to see people charged out of parks with horse-mounted police patrols charging in and stuff like that, um, I just I, I am on the side of those who say we have to get people out of the parks. And yes, that means we're going to have to probably spend more money on homeless shelters and on services, but it is not that underserved a community. You know, taking a really close look at a lot of these files. And while there are a lot of complicated aspects to it, for example, according to the numbers, something like, uh, according to homeless activists, about 160 people a night ask for shelter, don't get it. But there's a lot more to that story. And at the core is still people living in a park, in a tent, in the freezing cold, trying to stay warm, ending up setting a fire 
and dying in that fire, which just a, you know, a situation that cannot continue. I was mentioning a situation in Mexico, and I think it's important that we frame this. It's in an area called Mazatlan, and it's actually, well, Mazatlan is a city, but it's in a province that at the moment is rife with violence by the drug cartels because they're mad that El Chapo's son got busted. And they've been setting things on fire. There's been gunfire in the streets. And while the average Canadian probably never smelled the smoke or heard the uh, gunfire, the thinking by Canadian officials was you probably should avoid this area. And as soon as air service was restored, a good number of people sprinted from for the most part, I mean, there are people who live in all kinds of housing down there, but for the most part, when you go to Mexico, you end up on a resort, in which case you're probably sealed off from a lot of the danger. Uh, but people made the sprint from wherever they were to fly back to Canada. And I guess there's a lot of people listening right now. I heard from some of you last week when we first discussed this, and you thought, well, should I even go? And I have no advice for that. And let's face it, the guidance that you get from uh, Foreign Affairs Department in Ottawa is always going to be over-cautious. You know, they will put a warning on a country for reasons that may be, one could say, could end up being fairly remote for your personal experience. You know, there could be plenty of violence going on in Mexico that would never go anywhere near the resort, which may even be a walled-off resort. So I got no special advice for you, except I've not been a fan of Mexico for, for a good long time. Speaking of uh, violence abroad, they rioted yesterday in the capital of Brazil, which we'll talk more about this a little later on in the show, but Brasilia is one of the all-time strange cities in the world because it was purpose-built in the middle of nowhere, and it is a carless city, and it, the whole idea was to build a city from scratch. And it happened in the late 50s and early 60s, if memory serves. And the thing is, back then, they had some pretty weird impressions of what would make the perfect city. And Brasilia is either the most beloved place that some people have ever lived or the most soulless, dull, wretched, civil service-infested uh, international capital on the planet. But what happened on the weekend was supporters of the former Brazilian president, uh, Bolsonaro, decided to stage a riot. And they ended up breaking into all kinds of um, facilities, including the Congress building and the courts. And then they ransacked them and the presidential palace. And it doesn't take too many leaps of logic to establish that, you know, because Bolsonaro and Donald Trump are best buds. As a matter of fact, Bolsonaro is in Florida right now visiting Donald Trump. Um, this seems to be the new normal. Don't like the result of an election? Stage a riot. And, you know, there's even a sort of peripheral aspect to the uh, convoy protests. Because the convoy protests weren't just about vaccine mandates and masks. They were about the idea that Justin Trudeau had to go. Well, you know what? You've had three elections. There will be another one. You can vote. You can organize. You can door knock. You can donate. You can do whatever you want to be part of the democratic process. But staging an occupation and demanding that the governor general fire the prime minister, sorry, it's a non-starter. And so it, it does become distressing 
to reflect on the idea that when you don't get the result in an election, first of all, you say the election was a fraud, which people seem to agree in Brazil is not the case. Certainly the evidence is not there in the states. I mean, in the states now, you have the governor of, um, well, no, the, the not governor. <laughs> she was defeated. Uh, Carrie Lake lost the election in Arizona, and she has taken to calling herself the governor in interviews because she cannot abide the fact that in a fair election, she actually lost. And if we're going to continue that line of reasoning and thinking moving forward, if a litmus test of your republicanism in the United States is pretending that the 2020 election was a fraud, there is something fundamentally wrong. But now we've seen it happen in, uh, in Brazil. So Bill Morneau uh, appeared yesterday on Vash Capella's show, the Sunday morning political show, and amongst other things, talked about the fact that he felt that we may have overspent on COVID. And he talks about the tension between himself and the prime minister. And it's not surprising because finance ministers are almost always the presumptive heir to a prime minister. And so they're always trying to cement the legacy both of the prime minister, but more importantly, their own moving forward so that they can eventually become the prime minister. And he just talked about the fact that for five years, he and Justin Trudeau were not necessarily always loggerheads, but they had their tensions. And it got to the point where he had to go. My goal all the way through my time in office was really how do we deal with the economy that's going to create long-term advantage for the country, so opportunities for future. And so being fiscally prudent was always a big part of what I wanted to, what I wanted to ensure we were doing as, as Minister of Finance. So I think in a moment where I saw us taking decisions that were, were more significant than I thought we needed, you know, it was, it was you know, frankly extremely frustrating. And so it's not, a, it's not a new thing between finance ministers and prime ministers that there's tension. And five years working together is a pretty long time. But I think in that moment, you know, it started to sow the seeds of, of a challenge that we just weren't going to be able to overcome. And Vashi is going to join us at 635 to give us the broad strokes of her conversation with the former, former finance minister. One of the things I'm curious about is if there are any hints that he thinks he can recover and get back into politics and perhaps come back and run for the leadership of the party. Thing is, there's a pretty significant list of people who have been rumored to want that job. One of them being Christia Freeland, who's deputy prime minister and finance minister. And she's probably first in line. People keep on talking about the former governor of the Bank of Canada, but he probably likes making a million dollars a year doing something else altogether. And Morneau, unfortunately, never quite made much of an impression while he was in office. And his exit, even though I think the We Charity scandal has been blown up into something way bigger than it ever was, but his exit in a degree of scandal probably permanently damages any political future you might think he has. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Sometimes in sports, you tell a story. It's not just about the scores. It's about the sweetness of the victory. Or in the case of the Buffalo Bills this weekend, it was triumphing on the field with an incredible opening play. I mean, the kind of thing that always ends up in a highlights reel. But the fact that it was the opening play was extraordinary. 
And the Buffalo Bills did all this while DeMar Hamlin was watching from his hospital bed and actually making the gesture, the heart gesture with his hands. So again, if there's any question as to whether there was any cognitive damage when he had his cardiac arrest, it looks like he may make a full recovery. Who knows if he'll ever play football again, but it looks like he'll live to fight another day. Fielded at the four by Hines, coming straight up the middle to the 20, cuts it back at the 25, he's got an alley down the right sideline to the 40, 30, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Naheem Hines, 96 yards, Buffalo on the board with the first play from scrimmage. What a tribute to DeMar. This kickoff return unit set the tone for what today is going to be, and that's a celebration of number three, DeMar Hamlin. And they were celebrating him everywhere. Even the opposing team had uh, patches with the number three on them. Number three was etched into the field in every football game that was played yesterday. And, you know, without overthinking things, Somebody, one of our pundits offered last week when we were discussing his cardiac arrest, which in all likelihood was caused by the fact that he took a hit right to the chest at just this moment in the beating of his heart that stopped the heart altogether. But somebody was observing that we tend to ignore the implicit violence involved in the game of football because we love football so much. And so the fact that years after their careers, Football players die from brain injury and die from and end up with, um, uh, you know, uh, progressive brain damage. And I think we're over 50 now who have donated their brains after they die for analysis. And it's been found that they suffered from the kind of damage that results from taking hits to the head. And then you end up with something that resembles Alzheimer's later in life. But nobody really cares. You know, and um, people keep sending their kids into the field to play football in the hopes of uh, some kind of professional sports glory down the way. So we're prepared to accept that level of implicit violence in that sport because we like the sport itself. A couple of stories about transit in Toronto, one of them being this very curious story, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to find out what uh, Scott Reed is going to say on the morning brief at 6.20, what our pundits will say at 7.45 and 8.45. I'd actually, I'd love to hear from somebody at Metrolinx to explain the wisdom behind closing the doors one minute early before a train pulls out of the station. And it just, it, I, I've been trying to find the, the words to express how oddball I find this to be. Because if the train's scheduled to leave the station at 7.45 in the morning, the fact that the doors are going to close at 7.44 and then the train's going to sit there and then it's going to pull out at 7.45, I don't know how that materially changes the quality of the service. I just, I almost wonder if, you know, maybe they should start playing meditation music or something and that 60 seconds can be dedicated to one thing or another and maybe it'll lead to greater mental health amongst go train users, um, but I don't know necessarily that it's going to make the train any more reliable. Uh, the other go or Metrolink story would be there was a protest, as you may have seen, uh, about the construction of the Eglinton Crosstown. It's actually an extension of the Crosstown through an area known as Eglinton Flats. And a curious aspect of this protest was it was an indigenous-led coalition of people 
and they feel that it's a blight on this stretch of land if the train runs at surface or elevated, so they want it to be tunneled. I'd like to tell Metrolinx that you were the people that showed us that the less and best way to uh, not have environmental impact on the land is underground. You provided that information. We are running it as not running with it as uh, individuals, as indigenous folks, with our natural law to protect the lands. One of the unfortunate aspects of this particular stretch, though, is apparently it's a floodplain. So even surface level might be a problem, but going underground is probably a non-starter. And then there were also people from the neighborhood saying, okay, I get it, this is traditional indigenous land, but we live here and you folks came from outside of the community this time for this protest. Again, on the agenda for uh, free-for-all round one and round two. Also on the agenda this morning would be a lawsuit that has been filed by a school system in Seattle against Facebook, TikTok, and other big firms, and they insist that the media giants are actually creating a system that is dangerous for children's mental health. NBC News Radio National Correspondent Aaron Real is here with more. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. That's right. So Seattle Public Schools, they filed a lawsuit. They did this Friday in U.S. District Court. It's a 91-page complaint that calls out Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, they're saying that the social media companies have created this public nuisance by targeting their products to children, and it, it blames them for worsening mental health and behavioral disorders. They say anxiety, depression, eating disorders, cyberbullying, all on the up, and it's making it more difficult to educate students and forces schools to take steps to hire additional mental health professionals. And, and what the lawsuit says specifically is that from 2009 to 2019, there was an average of a 30% increase in the number of Seattle public school students who reported feeling, quote, so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more. I mean, that's really quite heartbreaking. And it said that they had to stop doing all typical activities. So what the school district wants is they're asking the companies to stop creating a public nuisance, award damages, and to pay for prevention, education, and treatment for excessive and problematic use of social media. But what's so interesting is that there's currently a federal law that helps protect online companies from liability that arises from what the third-party users post on the platform. However, this lawsuit, it, 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 it isn't going after what third parties are posting, and, and the provision does not protect the tech giant's behavior in this case. So what they say is that they're alleging that the defendants are liable for not what for what third parties are posting, but rather for their own conduct in recommending and promoting harmful content to youth, things like pro-anorexia, eating disorder content, things of that nature. Interesting stuff. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see where the suit goes. Aaron, thank you very much. Thanks. NBC News Radio National Correspondent Aaron Riel. And it brings you back to the ongoing debate of what exactly, and a lot of this is right now about Twitter because Elon Musk not only took it over, but is trying to reshape it. So is Twitter a broadcaster? Is it something, you know, akin to a newspaper where there can be editorial control? Is it supposed to be some kind of chaos? Is the creation of something that provides mental McNuggets with the deliberate 
effort to maximize eyeballs and maximize the time you spend on a given service, is that somehow nefarious or is that just a way of doing business? All good questions, and I'm sure they'll be debated in that courtroom. They'll be debated on our show. That is The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.